phase is locked and ready to fire, sir. Illogical. Hello, welcome back to Federation Radio with your host Floyd once again. So, I decided to call it quits yesterday and we just recorded three, but today... Today we'll see how many I get through, but we're starting with episode 13. Well, episode 13 of season 2, Obsession. Which is... I actually... You know what? I, I know I said this some of the earlier episodes, but I 100% forgot about this episode. This is... This is a brilliant episode, but it's also a terrible episode in another sense that this episode, the, almost the entire episode, did not feel like a Star Trek episode. This felt like, you know, this would be more fitting in like another setting, like, I don't know, maybe Star Wars or something like that. Maybe maybe not Star Wars, just a different kind of horror, because this felt more like a monster hunting type of thing. Like in this episode, Kirk may as well have been a witcher. He just wanted to kill this damn thing. He had this in his mind that it has to die. And he continued to argue with everyone that it must die. He risked people's lives for it. He was risking an entire colony because of a medical delivery of perishable items that he was supposed to be making while he was doing this. And it was all to kill a creature. And I can't help but think, later on in a lot of Trek, this episode would have ended with them somehow learning to communicate with the creature and the captain being reprimanded and probably not even being the captain. It would have been an admiral or uh, some other kind of higher rank like that that's come in and they'll depict them as the one that's pushed the captain out the way because I know better. This is a threat above your station. But in this one, they were very bold to just use Kirk because Kirk doesn't come off looking good in this episode. For the most part. It does depend, because he's not wrong about the threat of this creature. I just, the way he goes about it and the fact that he doesn't even attempt to find alternatives, I don't know, that doesn't feel Star Trek to me. But at the same time, it's an excellent episode. It's really well done. It just, you know what I mean? It feels weird. It doesn't feel like I'm still watching Star Trek in this episode a lot of the time. But anyway, instead of going into my problems with the overall episode, we'll go back to the start and I'll actually explain to you what it is. So... There's a creature. Sorry, there's not a creature at first. So how the episode starts is they're on a planet. Kirk, three security officers, and Spock. They are looking for something called Tritanium, which is apparently 21 times harder than Diamond. And they have to use their phaser to burn off a bit, do a little bit of a scan, and Spock says, yep, this is exactly what we were told was here. The deposits have been confirmed. Which tells me they've probably scanned the system from a distance picked up on the fact that Tritanium was here and some mining corp probably wanted it or the Federation wanted it and they just sent the Enterprise out to be like, can you just confirm before we put a bunch of resources towards this? And they did. And literally, the Tritanium not mentioned again for the rest of the episode, which kind of surprised me. I thought they were making such a point of describing what it was and how it works that I really thought it was going to be more important. It wasn't. But, you know, anyway, they were there scanning for this, and we learned that apparently they are meeting with another ship, the Yorktown, not long from now. So I think their idea was that they were going to quickly confirm whether these are real, and then from here they go straight to the next location. And we learned throughout the episode that that's because there's apparently some kind of plague or disease or something going wrong on a planet somewhere somewhere presumably far enough away that the Enterprise's superior engines to your average ship like the Yorktown needs to deliver and they're supposed to meet with the Yorktown pick up these medical goods which we're told are perishable 
which tells me they're probably a very unique in like McCoy even says they have a limited supply and they're perishable and the planet desperately needs them. So, you know, that tells me it's probably something they can't just create on the ship with the fabricators or anything. Like, this is a real important medical delivery and if it's not done on time, people will die. Now, Kirk knows this and they're checking out the Tritanium. Presumably, like I said, there must be a time limit, like the Yorktown has to gather it all or whatever. There's a reason they're not warp-sixing towards it, I'm sure. So they're not in a huge hurry at first, but they will be shortly. Now, they're checking it out, they confirm it's real, and then Kirk suddenly just sort of looks up. He gets a smell, and he says to Spock, do you smell that? It's like honey. And you notice immediately, like, he's on the defensive. He's got his phaser out. Like, I know he just burnt off Tritanium, but we saw it put it back in his belt, and then he's drawn it again, he's like, do you smell honey? You're like, what the fuck do you mean, honey? What the hell's Kirk doing? And then we see a weird, like, white cloud figure, like a gas creature, which, I have to say, must have been really hard to do back in the day, because I'm, the way it looks, I think they quite literally just used, like, a smoke machine and then probably fans to try and move it in the direction they wanted it to move, like, I'm not sure how they did it, but looking at it, it made me really laugh, because I'm like, it. you can tell, it does look gaseous, and honestly, it actually doesn't look that bad. It looks better than some of the background sets, but like, I don't know, it's, it's weird the choice they made, and the thought of all these guys with fans running around the actors trying to make the smoke move in the direction they want, and having to continually adjust all the lights and everything must have been such a pain to record this, but impressive nonetheless. So there's this gas creature... And it moves over from behind the rock where they just got a sample and goes above them. Kirk immediately turns to the security and says to them, Red alert. There is a gaseous creature. Set your scanners for... Oh, I can't remember what it was. It was like dicolphite or something. Dutherite. Some, if I had to guess, probably made up chemical name. And Spock raises his eyebrow and we learn later on the ship it's because he knows that that chemical is apparently not naturally found. It's only something that can be found in labs and is synthesized by people. So suddenly feeling because you smelled honey to put everyone on red alert and say to scan for it, if you knew that information beforehand, would seem very odd. However, we soon see... Oh, sorry. He tells them to scan for it, to go after on red alert, and he also tells them to put their phases on Disruptor 2, which I have to assume at this point is the equivalent of maximum setting. Because there's stun, low damage shot that they do for like if they want to... If, if someone's got like a little bit of armor or something, but you're not really trying to kill them, you'll hit them with low. And then there's high, which is you are in grave danger and whatever is coming at you, you're not sure it can kill it, but you need all the power you have. You know, Starfleet tends to try and live on stun most of the time. So when the captain immediately tells you to go to maximum setting... You listen to them, because they don't give that command very often, and when they do, you take them seriously. You turn your weapons up and you be ready to fire. So we see this gaseous cloud, and it comes over the ridge, and it hits two of the men who were scanning, because the three of the security ran off, and Kirk and Spock are standing there, and they have this little discussion about what's going on. And then we see the cloud gather on all three of the men. None of them manage to get a shot on them, it seems to sneak up on them, and it starts just... It moves around them. Like, if it was water, I'd say they're swimming in it, but it's gas, but I don't really know how to describe being inside of gas, but it's like they're swimming inside the entity and they can't get out. And then, after choking, like, one of them manages to get the communicator out and say, Captain, gas, can't, and then kind of, you know, starts to collapse. And when the Captain and Spock get there, everyone's on the ground. 
and they're all really pale because apparently it has eaten all the iron from their blood which I, I i don't know the chemistry on it exactly but i know that what makes your blood red is iron because you know in a lot of old video games and fantasy there tends to be a lot of like green blood and yellow blood and that and I think in nature there are a few types, like I could be wrong, but I think certain amphibians have blue blood. I could be wrong on that. And it comes down to what's in your blood. For humans it's because it's iron, and quite often we get the jokes from McCoy to Spock about his green blood, and we even had the episode before in Babel where he had to give blood to his father, and we saw again that it's this like almost fluoro green colour. So like we, we've seen before that his blood's different. But, you know, scientifically it's to do with iron, and that's only important because this creature is actually after the iron in the blood. And we learn this because later in the episode it attacks Spock, and when it attacks Spock, its scent changes from a nice honey to a, like... Kirk describes it as like a salty earth sort of smell. And apparently that's because it's unable to eat whatever is in Spock's blood that makes it green. I forget what it is, but this I think he does mention it's like... Oh, I can't remember now. I think it was brass. That's no, not brass. It's uh, maybe bronze. I I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to try to remember the science. But I do remember watching a video once of a guy explaining what you would have to have in your blood to have green blood and that sort of stuff. And like there, there was a certain mixture that if you had too much of it in your blood, it could go green. But anyway, so it's after the iron. But basically, what you've got here in this episode is an interesting case of a creature that is basically a gaseous vampire. At least that's what I got from it. It is a gas cloud vampire. It is going from planet to planet, sucking humans dry of the iron in their blood. This thing is just gas-form Dracula. If he's turned into a gas instead of a thing of bats, this would be it. Except, we know it's intelligent. But because, like I said, we don't try and communicate with it, we don't really know how intelligent. It's still a bit, even I'm like up in the air at the end of, I'm not quite sure where I land on how intelligent it was. Now, this creature attacks, kills two of them. One of them does survive the attack just, but the doctor says there's not much he can do for him and they manage to get a little description of the creature and what happened out of him before he dies. Then there's a second party. Now, that guy that died, by the way, was the head of security on the ship. I think he was Rizzo or something. His name doesn't really matter. He's never come up before. He was just for this episode and they killed him off. Typical red shirt. Then we got a Gavrock, I think his name was. And he was the son of Kirk's first captain. And he was now the head of security. And he comes up to the bridge and says, Sir, Rizzo is dead. I'm your new head of security. And the captain looks at him and says, you're the son of, and he doesn't reveal what, but we learn later, he's the son of Kirk's first commander, the very first captain Kirk ever served under when he was an ensign. And he served with him for a couple years before, you know, he started going through his career to get towards the Enterprise. So, you know, this is a pretty big deal for him, and it's the son of him. And, you know, to his credit, the guy does say, but even though my father was your friend, I do not expect any special treatment. And Kirk sort of just nods and smiles and says, yes, and... Don't worry, you will not receive any. And says, now, I need a security team with me. And he takes down another squad. And they're ready with disruptors out to go. And unfortunately, they split up. This new guy, Garv, is standing there. And he sees three of his crewmen in front of him, his security team. The gas cloud jumps on them in front of him. And he hesitates. And you know what? 
I don't blame him. It's scary. A lot of people freeze up. I, I'm trying not to judge people for that. Like, if you've never been in a stressful or, like, life-endangering situation, it's scary. And even when you have, you've never seen anything like an alien gas cloud. Like, even the, a lot of hardened soldiers, I think, would freeze up when it came to actually alien threats like that. Like, what the hell do I even do? Does your brain even default to firing at that point? Do you even think bullets would be effective? It's gas. Like, I'm sure there's a part of our monkey brain that's going to freeze up at some point if we ever interact with such entities. And, you know, I, I try not to blame characters too harshly in fiction for that stuff because I think it's sort of realistic. People freeze up even today, and we've had guns for how long now? Like, what, I think the first firearms were, what's like, 15, 1600s? But we, we'll say realistically, like, modern firearms, maybe 1800s onwards. And to this day, most people still freeze up when they either hold one and aim it at someone or when it's aimed at them. So, like, we've never dealt with stuff like this before. I don't blame them. It's like in fantasy when you see people freeze up at dragons. Like, yes, stupid, fire-breathing lizards in front of you don't freeze, but also never had fire-breathing lizard in front of me. Like to say that right now without it being there, maybe I'd freeze in that moment. I don't know. But, you know, he freezes... And all these men die in front of him. He then has to give his report to Kirk about what happened, because they go, obviously, they evacuate everyone back to the ship to be like, okay, we went down to go after him, we've lost three more men, we need to rethink this, because we can't keep throwing men at it. And they're having a session where they bring in, it's Kirk and Spock, and they're sitting there, and they bring uh, Garvin, the new head of security, to get his report about the creature and everything they can. They're in their little little conference room. You know, I don't. it's probably not standard procedure to give your report to the captain normally because of this situation being an emergency. It makes sense that they do that. So he sits down, he gives his description, and they say, ah, they sort of put words in his mouth. They say, so you fired at the creature before it touched them? What did happen? And he says, well, I didn't fire at them before I touched them. They're like, oh, you didn't. Okay, so you fired at it once it attacked your man. Maybe you didn't notice until they were yelling. And he says, ah, no. I did notice when they started I didn't notice until they started screaming then they hit the floor when I turned around it was there it was about to move towards me and I said I was about to fire and then it left and he gets confused and they're like so you didn't fire you mean you were about to fire like you didn't fire and he said no sir I hesitated and he sort of holds himself accountable for this like he does that whole survivor's guilt thing where like he lives he's two people three people particularly for him is probably hard because they're the it's his first command obviously he's never been head of security he's a new promote and on his very first mission he's gotten three men killed that's got away pretty heavy on anyone's conscience but what we learn later that is very interesting like at that point kirk actually gets angry at him and he says dismissed you are cleared of all duties right now and confined to quarters because he says you know He's like, he hesitated. Spock sort of at that point does turn to the captain and he's like, that seems a bit harsh, captain. He says he hesitated and now three men are dead. What would you have me do? And then he sort of raises his eyebrows. He's like, all right. And then he goes off. So unfortunately, Garv is condensed to quarters, refuses to, you know, they refuse to let him work. But what's interesting about that is that we learn afterwards, 11 years ago, when Kirk served under Garv's father as captain of, I, I don't think, they might have mentioned the ship. I don't remember the ship's name. It doesn't matter. Kirk's first deployment under that captain. They ran into this same gaseous entity on a planet not too far from here. Well, 
galactically speaking, not far. It's not in the same system or anything, but it's less than a day's travel using the warp drive, so relatively close. And Kirk, in that mission, was supposed to fire at it, but he hesitated because he was a young ensign, and just like Garv had before, he hesitated. And then everyone on the ship died. I didn't actually write down the exact number, but I believe because McCoy and Spock pull up the reports of the creature because Kirk tells them to pull up the reports from that ship and that incident 11 years ago, you know, to help them know what they're dealing with here. Because keep in mind, like I mentioned earlier, there are medical supplies they're supposed to be picking up and dropping off. There are people that are dying. The time limit on the perishable side of those meds is closing. And Kirk is continuing to stay around the planet and hunt this creature and refusing to leave orbit even though they're now late for their deadline. And throughout this entire process we've seen multiple scenes of Scotty and McCoy and Spock all trying to tell him, like, we should go, Captain, we shouldn't be here. You know, they all agree this is dangerous, but they're all like, we should go take care of this and then we can come back. We have, you know, as Spock points out, there's no proof this thing can travel about uh, more than a planet. Like, we don't think it can leave the atmosphere. It's there no sign of that. So we can presumably go help these people and then come back. And Kirk says, no, read these reports. And in those reports, it talks about a different planet. And then they realize, oh, like, and they have a meeting with him because McCoy and Spock sort of read it. They see what's happening. And at this point, while they agree there is a threat, and they sort of see what he's getting at, like Evie can travel through space and it kills people and it kills an entire ship of people, like well over a hundred. Um, it is dangerous and perhaps Kirk's not fully in the wrong for going after it, but they also say he's acting like a man obsessed. They sort of make a a whale sort of story out of it, you know, going after the whale, that sort of hunting the beast to the point of obsession when you start giving up other things and sacrificing things just to kill it. It's like, what you're doing is important, but it's become an obsession, and now it's becoming unhealthy, and you're avoiding other things. And they try and bring this to him, and they're like, because McCoy comes in and says, I read a report about a young man who hesitated to fire, fire, and then a few men died. And Kirk says, oh, you mean Garv? He's already been relieved of duties. I know of this. I know all about this. And McCoy says, well, I don't really think it's that man's fault. After all, we don't know that the phaser would have actually damaged it or saved him. Perhaps it was a bit harsh of that person to blame themselves or take the blame for this. And Kirk says, he, damn it, he should have fired or those people wouldn't have lived. And then McCoy says to him very slyly, I wasn't talking about Garth. I was talking about a young Ensign James T. Kirk 11 years ago. Because, you know, they're trying to make the case that this is... Yes, it's dangerous, but this is a personal crusade for you. You feel responsible for letting your first ship die. You know, when it very well may not have been your fault, and now you're sacrificing other people to satisfy a personal grudge. And that's, you know, understandably, it is kind of Spock and McCoy's job to make certain, like, not as personal individuals, but as the medical officer and the first mate. One of your main duties is to make certain the captain is not only capable, but is also doing the right thing. Because when he doesn't, it's your job to remove him and point that out and be able to justify why you did so. So they're doing the right thing, and like he gets really annoyed because, you know, they're right, basically. But he stands by it and says that I still believe this thing is dangerous. You are, r But he does congratulate them, like he does say, you are right to ask these questions. I would expect no less of either of you. You've done all your duties, but I am captain's prerogative. We are going to hunt this. 
And so they go back to hunting it. Now, during that conversation, the creature leaves the planet. Starts flying in space, which is an immediate, like, Spock's raising his eyebrows, like, well... Because Spock, up until this point, wasn't certain that they the two incidents were connected. He said it could have just been two similar gaseous entities. It doesn't necessarily equate to it being the same creature. The galaxy is a big place. Again, very fair criticism. And, you know, Kirk's certain that it is. He says, I can sense it. He says, maybe it communicates in a way that we don't understand, but I can feel it. I know where it came from. I know it's the same one. Still, you know, a bit weird, but at this point, it's left the atmosphere. Because Spock wasn't even sure if it was actually intelligent. He said it could have just been a gaseous entity that's just trying to feed. It may not be thinking. It might not be intelligent. The fact that it can move and eat does not necessarily mean intelligence. Basically saying, you know, if it's just a wild animal equivalent, couldn't we just quarantine the planet and put warning buoys out and then go save these lives? Why do we have to chase it? Whereas Kirk is saying it's intelligent, it was able to destroy an entire ship, and now I find it on another planet, what would happen if it goes to an inhabited planet full of people? What if it goes to, say, Earth next, or Vulcan? We need to deal with this. And you know what? I really liked that scene, because it was a good... Both sides had very good points. You could definitely see McCoy and Spock, like, Kirk was acting obsessed, he was getting men killed, he was personal crusade, revenge, like all we've said... And they were right to call that out, but also, his points are equally valid. If this thing was to show up on Earth, and he had not done his duty to try and do everything he could to work out how to counteract it or deal with it, then he would partially be responsible, along with the whole crew, for the deaths of everyone on Earth. You know, that's an extreme example, but like, you know what I mean, that's what they're worrying about. It likes eating people, what if it decides to track down lots of people? Not just a few on a ship, or a few on an outpost. And then it flies in space, and that's a big, like, all the arguments are sort of like, okay, it's flying. Because then the medical people that are like, we should just leave it, even have to be like, all right, maybe we can't quarantine. I still want to go do the medical stuff, but I admit we have to do this now. And then Spock's sort of like, okay, it's not, it doesn't necessarily make it intelligent, but it is now definitely a threat on that we agree. Now, throughout this, they chase it, and they chase it for, like, a day or two, to the point where Scotty is on the bridge giving one of his famous, I cannot do it, Captain! (laughs) The ship is gonna explode! I'm not gonna do his accent anymore, but, like, he's up there saying, the ship is gonna explode in the next hour. If you do not slow down, the ship is not built for warp 8. I am shunting power from other systems there. It is not built to maintain this, and it will explode if we continue doing this. And, you know, there's a lot of, like, when he says it will explode if we keep doing this, you sort of see Sulu and Chekhov and everyone's, like, stopping in their station, even though Hura stops and, like, turns around. Like, everyone's at their duty post, but they're kind of, like, watching the captain. Like, is he about to give the order for us to blow up? (laughs) Everyone's pretty damn concerned, and at that point he does say, drop down to warp six. We'll follow it at warp six, you know, which is a, they can maintain that without risking explosion. Which they do, and what's interesting is Kirk works out where it's going, because like I said earlier, he's ran into it before. And he knows that system isn't far away, and he rightly assumes that's where it's going. Now, (laughs) they realise that because of the type of creature it is, kind of like whales and a lot of other creatures, when they go home from their migration, because quite often these sorts of animals will travel a long way, same with birds, and they'll migrate and they'll feed and travel and do all that... And then they'll come back, and usually when animals in any kind of creature goes back to the area where it was born, 
It's a birthing ground. Usually it's a breeding place. It's where they'll return to give birth. And so there's a very sudden realization of, well, it took 11 years for this one to feed, and in that time it's killed just over 120 people. If it gives birth, and as Spock points out, being a gaseous entity or an entity of this magnitude, it's very likely that it will give birth to an entire school of children, possibly 50 or more at once, rather than a singular, like, dividing of cells or laying of an egg. Which is a very good point, and a point that they all point out is terrifying. We can, we don't know how to deal with one. If there's suddenly 114 of them, the entire Starfleet won't be able to protect our planets. So, you know, obviously, they all agree this has to be dealt with. Now, Kirk points out with Chekhov and the others, he says, how long would it be round trip warp six to get back to where the medical supplies are and do that mission? Chekhov says it would take 1.7 days to make it there at warp six. So Kirk says, tell them we will arrive in 48 hours, allowing himself a little bit of leeway to deal with this creature before they go, but also assuring the crew that he is going to deal with the other mission as well. This is not a wild hunt. So they go to deal with it, and they come up with the idea, like, what do we do? Because they're chasing it, and what I, I didn't talk about it before, but they fired at it when it was in space. It managed to move its body in a way where it just knew where it was going to get hit by the phaser, and just the gas dissipated there so that the phaser would pass through and then just came back after. And it did it at such a speed that the ship's weapons were unable to hurt it. And it did the same thing with proton torpedoes. They just went through it. It would just make like donut rings in the middle wherever they were about to be touched and then fly through. And then at that point, it turned around and came into the ship through one of the vents and it tried to attack through a vent. It actually went into Garv's room, who had been, remember, put off duty. He was in his quarters. Now, Spock had come to see him at this point because of the incident where they had just been firing on the creature because it entered the ship and it wasn't an instantaneous attack. It was in the ship for an hour or so in an event somewhere and they were trying to track it down. And Spock decided to... And I thought this was actually a very nice moment for Spock. It sort of shows what kind of commander he is to the day-to-day crew. Like, he's not just a rude Vulcan. You know, he came to see Garv and he was coming to see, you know, what just happened on the bridge proves that you were not at fault. You know, he tries to cover it up with, uh, it's merely logical. It would be illogical for your physiological response to trying to say the very scientific way of, you know, you blaming yourself is wrong because even if you had fired without hesitating, it wouldn't have harmed the creature. We have now confirmed that all it would have done is made a hole in it before it killed the three men in front of you. It would have made zero difference. You are not at fault. Which was both, you know, professional, but also kind of nice. Like, Nobody ordered him to go do that, and they were in the middle of a crisis. No one could have blamed Spock for waiting until this was dealt with and saying it would be logical to stay at my post. But he chose to take the time out of his crisis to go and see a man that was probably falling into a spiral of self-doubt and depression because he believes he's just got men killed, he's been reprimanded by his captain, probably thinks his career's over, and he's responsible for deaths. Like... This is a man, not to get too dark, but a man in that situation is probably moments from thinking about suicide. You're in a real danger spot there, and I like that as a part of Spock's character, he takes the time out of his schedule to do these things, to go and see crew. Like, that's a good showing that, like, in the day-to-day, he probably does this frequently. And he probably justifies it in a similar manner in his mind that, yes, it's logical to stay at my post, but there is also a certain logic to making sure that my crew are alive and capable of helping in future so the future crisis can be dealt with instead of having them 
die because I was busy at my post. When in reality, at his post, he couldn't do anything more. It was on board the ship. They were basically just waiting until an incident happened because they had no way of scanning for it. And they were just on lockdown, so really he had nothing to lose. It makes sense. But I just really liked it. I thought that was a really nice Spock moment that shows, you know, he is half-human. It's I don't know if a Vulcan would have connected those dots, but I feel like his human emotions, mixed with his logic, makes him come up with his own excuses for why he actually does give a shit about his crew. And that's nice. It's always nice to see a Vulcan being shown like that, because that's what I keep saying about Vulcans. They're a complex species where they're not as black and white as they appear. And we see that with Spock, we see that with Tuvok, and we see that with a lot of Vulcans. They're very complicated people. I mean, look at Spock's dad. He married a human. What an illogical move. But that shows that there's more down to that. Like, they do have emotions. They are an interesting people. And it's nice when they're depicted that way, because it's... I've said before, how the hell do you write a character that's suppressing their emotions? Because at that point, you're just writing a robot. It's, It's very hard to write an interesting, believable personality not just a walking robot like i said but a personality that has thoughts and opinions when that is their state of mind and i find it incredible every time they do something with them because that's just such a hard thing to do and they nail it so often anyway so they follow it to its landing grounds you know it comes through and it tries to attack garv like i said spock was in the room giving him this speech throws him out of the room so that it can't take the iron from his blood and this is where we learn it can't harm spock It tries to, it like surrounds him and you see it trying and then the engineering manages to reverse the vents once they got the alert because Garv goes straight to the hallway and says, Bridge, it's attacking Mr. Spock in my quarters. Came through the vent and then immediately engineering's like reversing the air on all of the vents in that room to try and suck the gas back into the vents to save Spock. You know, and they all come running down and then he's outside and he's holding his head, hands on his head like, oh god, <laughs> like, imagine this man's state of mind right now. Not only did he get men killed, he finally started to feel a little better when there was a moment where Mr. Spock was sort of saying, it's not your fault, immediately followed by that mid-speech as he's starting to feel a little better, he's thrown out the room by Spock, who then is locked in there with this creature, dying on the floor, as far as he knows, because the door is closed, he can't see what's happening, so he probably presumes like every other incident with this gas so far it's going to grow surround him and he's going to be on the floor and he's going to have pale skin and be dead when i go back in so in essence another man just died because of me (laughs) you know he's out there he's alert at the bridge which i'm glad he didn't freeze up this time he does call the bridge and they managed to i would say save spock they managed to contain the creature is probably more accurate because spock was in no real danger as it turns out because as Garl starts to say to the captain who is about to open the door, but before they can, he's, they're like going back and forth, like, well, we can't confirm the gas creature isn't there, and I will not unseal this door and risk letting it into the entire ship, even if it means Mr. Spock might be in danger in there. And then Garl's like, you know, like I said, hands on head, like, oh god, he died because of me, I'm responsible, Captain. And then the door opens, and Spock's standing there, and he says, luckily for you, Garv, Neither of us are on the floor dead. It seems it cannot absorb my blood. And the engi- and tell Scotty that it worked fine. It was sucked back into the vents. In that very calm, like, Spock manner. <laughs> and they make a bit of a joke about, you know, I think McCoy says something about, it's that green blood of yours left a bad taste in his mouth, just as like it does the rest of us. And Spock just sort of raises one eyebrow. Well, not uh, the way I would have put it, but you're not wrong. 
In essence, I did leave a bad taste in its mouth, and then the vent sucked it back in. Now at that point it leaves the ship, and then it goes to the planet, like I said, the one that Kirk originally met them on, or met it on. Now, Kirk at this point decides to... The only way to stop it, because they come up with a plan, they're like, what do we hit it with? We can't hit it with phasers, we can't hit it with proton torpedoes. So presumably, if proton torpedoes don't work, those artillery pieces like we saw with the Gorn episode are going to be useless too, and all the hand phasers they have are going to do nothing, because the one mounted to the ship is like a thousand times more powerful than what they have. But there is one thing they have, and you'll see this come up now and again, and I'm, I don't know if it's come up yet. I'm kind of glad it did, though, because I really like this. And a lot of sci-fi has actually taken this from Star Trek at this point, which I'm not saying they stole. I think it's cool that they're using the concept. Particularly, I'll point out, uh, Mass Effect uses this basically exact design, which is what made me laugh when I was watching the episode. They just recolor it. But um, it's a ball... They basically decide to use, sorry, I should describe the weapon first, an antimatter bomb, because the ship's engines, we don't know exactly how they work, but it's somehow there's a reaction between matter and antimatter in Star Trek. I don't know, real life, the science is probably very different. But in Star Trek, matter and antimatter hit each other, and then in the reactor, in the engine room, they are able to harness that reaction, and that is through the dilithium crystals. Because the reactor is powered by the dilithium crystals that apparently vibrate at a certain frequency, which when the matter and antimatter hit each other, is then reflected by those dilithium crystals, which creates the plasma and all the power they need to power everything on the ship. Probably all sci-fi bullshit, I'm sure the real science is far more mundane and confusing than that, but that's how it works in Star Trek, so that's all that matters here. So that's, they have it on board. And antimatter, if you've ever seen any kind of sci-fi about antimatter, is very explosive, which could be true. I don't actually know the science on it, but I believe there's some truth to that. But um, in these shows, they quite often try to use it as, this is basically the nuclear device. This is the equivalent of like an army show or an action movie pulling out the nuke bomb or the hydrogen bomb. Like this is, we're getting out the big guns. We're not fucking around. Because there's a few episodes where they do these antimatter explosions. And yeah, it really, this is a last resort. We are not fucking around. Whatever we're firing this at is going to fucking die along with the entire planet. Basically, is the concept of using a weapon like this. Which is why you see it so few times in the Federation. Because, well, like we've said many times, most of what they do is scouting out new life. Protecting new life and making friends. They try to do very little arguing, let alone fighting, let alone genocidal, world-destroying weapons being released. It's really not their MO. However, they do know how to do it, and they will do it when they have to. And this is one of those cases. So we get... Think of it as, you know, a globe. Like, a, you get the globes of Earth, and they're on, like, a, that metal axis, like they're ready to spin. Think of that... That's basically what we have. It's like a metal hoop going over the top of it, and it's like going down to like a circle that goes around, and it's all holding like a globe that would be able to spin. It's not quite touching them, but it's in the middle, like attached by like one spring or something. One spring or one pole, you know, like, you know what I'm talking about, like a globe. It's got the metal bits, and there's the tiny bits that connect to it, and then that lets it spin. Think about that, and then you've got like a sphere Except in Star Trek, it's a bright, bright blue sphere. Obviously, it's just a paper mache thing they've painted, but like in the show, it is a bright sphere that's being held up by a black, dark, 
I, I presume, metallic thing that's holding it in place. And we see, they come up with a plan, they're going to use an antimatter explosion. However, it is going to be such a yield that it is not only going to kill the creature, but it's going to create radioactive and other issues in the area and send shockwaves up out of the atmosphere to the Enterprise when... Keep in mind, this is a device they're going to explode on the ground, on the surface. And it's going to affect the Enterprise with waves from how big an explosion this is. That could be dangerous enough to damage the ship. And they even say that because of those waves, transporting someone, like teleporting them from the ground to the ship, at the time of that happening, may be impossible. Like, it's theoretically possible, but because of the different ways that it can affect them with the shockwave and the amount of variables you can't account for chances are it's not going to be so they come up with this concept where they get a bunch of hemoglobin like basically just blood like i think it's just iron heavy blood sort of stuff in a substance in a huge jar and they're going to use that as a bait to bring the creature over and then they're going to plant this antimatter bomb near it and set it off remotely that's the plan however it's a dangerous plan it eats iron, which means that anyone going down there is risking death. Although I do have to point out at that point, I feel like Spock would have been a good choice because it can't harm him. But then again, asking someone to go down to the ground and set off a nuke when you potentially might not be able to get away might be a bit much for any commander to give to anyone, which is why Kirk volunteers to do it himself. And I'll point out at that point, Garv, the young security officer, volunteers himself he is not ordered by anyone but he says i'm going with you captain for the sake of my men and my father i'm going with you and kirk says i won't deny you if you truly wish to come but i will not order it if you're coming with me meet me in the transporter bay and they do it they go down the two of them and it's it's a cool moment like i like that kirk in that moment knows that you can't order a man to do something like that but it has to be done so he's the type of guy that's like fine takes the gloves off and goes and does it himself and they go down the problem is the hemoglobin transports down they transport down with the bomb and they're slowly moving it towards the area and then the gas thing shows up immediately sucks the big bottle dry like the bay worked it amazingly it went straight for it it soaks it up and then kirk and they're like oh shit and then kirk says to garv you need to go you need to be transported back now get back i'll take this in there and then Garv does a very brave thing where he tries to knock Kirk out. But of course, Kirk's such a chad that somehow you're hitting him really hard on the side of the neck and the side of his stomach. When he's surprised, isn't enough to knock him out. And he manages to immediately get back up, be fully lucid, and give him an elbow to the face to knock him back. Now, I, I, why I say it's brave is because in that moment, he, of course, thinks Kirk's about to sacrifice his life and go and basically suicide charge this gas with the bomb. And he's like, no, I'm not going to let him do that. I'm going to save your life, even if it gets me in trouble. And that's a brave thing to do. But then Kirk says to him after he elbows him, he doesn't knock him out. He says to him, I'm not going to sacrifice myself, but consider yourself on report for that one. You just hit your captain. I don't intend to sacrifice myself. I have a plan. And then they both basically end up just moving the bomb after their little skirmish because they're just like, we're running out of time. The gas creature's coming towards us. They manage to move the bomb towards it. They run back and they try and transport up. The bomb goes off. While they mid-transport, 
they half get them on board and then they lose the signal a little bit and Scotty and, and Spock are in there, you know, pulling apart the circuits, doing everything they can to try and make it work and McCoy's sitting there stressed the fuck out next to it, staring at the transporter bay to see if Kirk's going to make it back. And we see the explosion and then we get the shockwave hits the ship and everyone's like flying around like a nuke just went off inside the ship, which keep in mind, atmosphere, we're talking like 20,000 kilometers or more in the sky. Think about how crazy big an explosion has to be to affect you that high in the sky. (laughs) And they even mention when they set this off, it is not only going to be an explosion that is going to be large, it's going to be an explosion so large it's actually going to strip about a quarter of that planet's atmosphere at once. It is so hot and large that a quarter of its fucking atmosphere is going to be disintegrated upon detonation. That is the type of explosion we're talking about. That is utter insanity that the Federation literally has world cracker bombs if they felt like it. Which is why I point out all the time that this universe should be very fucking glad that humans in this timeline decided to be friendly. Because the capabilities they have, these people would make Nazis look like heroes. Well, maybe not heroes, but they would make them look like nothing in comparison to the sort of damage these people could be doing if they were sadistic. Which is, you know, it's nice. It's what makes Star Trek Star Trek. It's why it's fun. Because they give them that You know, it's a sci-fi, this is happening, here's the lens though, and they force you to write within these very tight lines of humans are mostly passive, we're not looking to fight, and we're always diplomatic, so they basically make you write out all the negatives of humanity, but keep everyone else having those negatives, which makes us very hard to navigate, and I imagine as a writer, even harder to navigate how the hell you do these stories. But like I said, this story is weird because we don't even try and be diplomatic. This literally is. He's chasing his white whale and at the end he gets to throw the spear and he wins. <laughs> like, this is just purely a monster hunting story. I still don't feel like they gave sufficient evidence to show that all of these creatures are as dangerous or intelligent as they say. We weren't even certain it was going to give birth. That was an assumption by Spock that they performed no tests whatsoever to make sure of. For all we know, this was one creature and that's... It just travels between these two planets and has for millennia and we just stripped a planet's atmosphere out of fear. You don't know. That's the thing. That's why I say this episode sort of doesn't feel like Star Trek at times because they're doing things that ordinarily I feel like Starfleet would call other species out for. But anyway, they set off the bomb. It works. They get back to the ship. They survive. They've killed it and presumably, like he told Chekhov, they're going to go make their rendezvous to save other lives. They're the heroes. Yippee. And I mean, it's good. And... You know, I don't fully blame them like the creature was. Like I said, a gaseous vampire could have been dangerous. It's just I don't feel like we did enough to make certain that it was dangerous before we decided to genocide it and make sure nothing could ever, ever evolve on that planet ever again. <laughs> like, that's that's a next-level environmental damage. We argue today about, you know, how much each company or country pollutes. But imagine if Russia just set off an explosion that stripped half the atmosphere. Like, not only would we be all dead, but like, come on, think about the scale we're talking about. I know this planet was technically not inhabited, but I feel like that's almost eco-terrorism to blow up any atmosphere, because things could evolve. That planet may one day, given enough time, have life. You you can't just go around stripping atmospheres. I, I really feel like there must have been a better way to deal with this creature, is what I'm saying. Whether it was containing it, learning to communicate with it, Perhaps killing it just in a way that doesn't absolutely decimate a planet. 
I just didn't feel like that was necessary for what? It's killed, I think so far, I said about 120 people? Like, that's a lot, but that's 120 people over 11 years, and they're in locations that Starfleet is now aware of. We still have no proof that it goes to any other location. I just, I feel like a lot of this episode just didn't explore a lot of these avenues enough and was way too quick to just blow off the bomb. And it's weird. I'm not sure why they went for that, because it's very unusual. But, like I said, also, that's me looking at it objectively as an overall Star Trek episode, as an entertaining piece of TV. This is actually a very good episode. I really enjoyed it. It had a lot of high moments. (laughs) But, thanks for listening. I think I've rambled enough about this one, which I've nearly, what, 45 minutes now almost, and in my mind I was thinking, oh, this should be a short episode, there shouldn't be too much to say, it's a pretty simple story. Wow, look at me rant. See you all next time.